welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. And welcome back to Note Doctors. Thank you so much for tuning in to our conversations with some really amazing theory in our skills pedagogues. For today's conversation, we are talking with Jan Miyaki. So Ben, tell us a little bit about Dr. Miyaki. Sure, Paul. Jan Miyaki is Chair and Associate Professor of Music Theory at Oberlin College and Conservatory. In addition to teaching, Miyaki serves as President of Music Theory Midwest, from 21 to 23, and chair of the Society for Music Theories Committee on the Status of Women. I mean, it comes up. Uh, Dr. Miyaki is actually suggesting a name change for that group as well. Her current passions include DEI, or diversity, equity, and inclusion work, uh, along with her work on anti-racism and Oberlin's new curriculum, questioning how we understand Haydn's forms and the banjo. I think students learn when they feel safe and when they feel welcomed and wanted. Um, and I think that as, I, I don't say I teach, I say I facilitate learning. So as, as facilitators of learning, um, that's incumbent on us to create that atmosphere. And it starts from day one with the syllabus and how, you know, I just revamped my syllabus again. And like, instead of saying accommodations, I wrote, and accommodations are embraced as like the header. And he said, instead of office hours, I write, you are welcome in office hours. You know, it's just, just stuff like that, just to just, you know, lay the groundwork. So hello and welcome. Today, our very special guest is Jan Miyaki. We're so pleased to have you on the podcast uh, to share your knowledge and your experience with us. Um, before we get started with uh, some more specific questions, we always like to ask uh, our guests a little bit about their background. You know, what led you to pursue music theory? Was it the prospect of spending hours listening to individual sight singing exams? Is that what, is that what excited you so no. much? No. Okay. No, no. Um, <laughs> You know, so much of my life I've lived by process of elimination. Um, I Very few people go to undergrad hoping to become a, a music theorist. Some do. Um, I went to undergrad uh, planning to be a professional orchestral violist. And it was pretty clear to me by the end of my first year that that was not the path that I actually wanted to travel. Um, but I didn't want to quit. I, I, I finished that out. I was also um, pursuing a Bachelor of Arts in Mathematics, and that was going really well. And I fiddled with the idea of going to grad school in math, but you know, it's so lonely. They don't do a lot of collaborative work, at least they didn't at that time. And it was like the opposite of music, which is all collaborative when you're a violist. So it's, um, that didn't work. And then this guy ahead of me got a full ride to Yale for music theory. And I went, whoa. I didn't know I could do that. Um, and, you know, I was good at music theory and I liked music theory and, and that was kind of it. Um, I think the main impetus for going straight to grad school was to avoid paying my student loans. I wasn't ready. Yeah, I wasn't ready to get a job and, and try to pay down my college debt. Um, and I had a wonderful mentor who looked at my list of grad schools I'd come up with by myself. And he said, ah, uh, no, I don't think those are the right 
right schools. And he like, I had like chosen all these like local regional schools to me. He's like, no, 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 you need to be applying to Harvard and Yale and CUNY and Eastman, which was the mid nineties list. Um, and I was like, whoa, again. And so, you know, thank goodness for mentors. Um, and I guess you could say the rest is history. And so what was it like when you went to graduate school and you got to focus in on music theory? Was it kind of like, wow, this is the place I need to be? It was, honestly, it was a little bit of a letdown. Um, yeah, I went to, <laughs> to Oberlin Conservatory um, for my undergraduate, which is where I'm fortunate enough to teach now. And I took six upper division classes to finish the major. And I took classes with Warren Darcy and Paul Mast and Brian Allegant. And I mean, we have a huge, really impressive theory department. And I learned so much in those classes. And, and grad school, for some reason, I, was, I think I was overprepared. Um, and oh, Rothstein was at Oberlin then also. And so I ended up following him to the grad center and worked with him there. I, where the joy of grad school came was um, I had time to um, live and just be. Um, like we were in New York City, I had time to explore a city. Instead of work, 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 the way it was in undergrad, I had time to read you know, multiple articles a week and digest them, which I just didn't in, in undergrad. Um, and I had time to do an independent research project of massive proportions, and that was not something I had to have at my disposal in undergrad either. And so I really, I think that was where my soul sang in grad school was in, in those parts of the life. What is it like to be back teaching where you went to undergrad? My my theory colleague uh, is in that situation where he he went to where we teach at DBU and now he's back and he's my colleague there. I've wondered what that experience is like. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, I'd only been gone for five years when I came back. And so I was much closer in age to my students than I was to my colleagues and learning how to call my colleagues, most senior colleagues by their first name was very difficult. Um, very, very difficult. Uh, other than that, I think the, the main thing that really got me is that I didn't realize while I was a student how good we were as students, like how inquisitive and um, pushing boundaries. And like, I was just like, oh, it's just Oberlin. But when you're on the other side and you're teaching, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm learning so much from my students. These students are incredible. Mm. Um, and, and I think that was the, the biggest realization was coming back that way. So there's a wonderful video um, out there with uh, Punch Brothers doing a residency at Oberlin. And Punch Brothers, if you don't know, they are a bluegrass kind of in name only, I guess, uh, ensemble um, led by Chris Thiele, MacArthur Genius Award winner. Um, and it shows them going in and working with, you know, orchestras and quartets and jam sessions. And it's just, and Ed Helms is in the video too, the actor, because uh, he's an alumni. And it um, is such a great video because it shows the dynamic uh, environment that that's at Oberlin. So, can you talk to us a little bit about you know what Oberlin is like, maybe? Yeah, sure. Um, the Punch Brothers as a residencies are a great example. I was fortunate enough to be the associate dean of academic affairs during those years, and so I got to plan a lot of those residencies and certainly academic components of it. Um, I think one of the greatest things about Oberlin is it's all undergrads. 
Um, so there, it's just like this big, messy, big hot mess of a percolator, right? <laughs> because they're all pretty much 18 to 22 years old. And we love our 18 to 22 year olds, but we also know that brain development's not really done until you're 24. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a big hot mess. Um, and they're willing to try just about anything. They respond really well to virtuosity, whether it's Punch Brothers or whether it's Midori or, or, what, or whether it's classroom teaching. We've got some tremendous classroom teachers here. Um, it's a vibrant campus. There is a core of students that are willing to take risks that really helps um, pull the rest of us along who are more risk adverse. It's not that every Oberlin student takes risks. It's that there's so many of them that it's it's it makes it easier for everybody else to do that. And we all, you know, we all learn best when we fail. <laughs> and you don't fail if you don't take risks. Um, so that's one of the greatest parts about Oberlin. The other thing is we are surrounded literally by cornfields. Um, we're in rural north central Ohio. Um, it's only a 30 minute drive to the airport. So you're not that disconnected. And it's about 50 minute drive to hear the Cleveland Orchestra. So, I mean, really. Uh, that's that's pretty wonderful. Um, and you there's not a lot of distractions. It's not like when I went to New York City for grad school and got to explore a city and do all these things. So everybody's just kind of here together. And it's a it's a big community project in a way. It's just you're living in a literally in a bubble bubble surrounded by cornfields. Um, and it's great. It's a very musical campus. The conservatory has, I think, around 600, 580 students. And the College of Arts and Sciences has another 2,500-ish, maybe less, 20, I don't know the specific numbers. And then there's a, like 40 a year who are doing a double degree. Um, and so there's a wide variety of music going on, not just in the con. We have a robust jazz program. And then there's the scene. There's the folk scene. There's the grunge scene. There's the rap scene. It's the, the, parties, the party band scene. Um, we have a band house. We have a gear co-op. Uh, people come to Oberlin to make music, whether they're in the conservatory or not. So it's pretty fun. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, I love the idea of the hot mess being a good thing. I, that it's so yeah. important. I think some people, if they walked in the, into my class, they would think this is such a hot mess. But I would be thinking this is some <laughs> great music making right now. And just people, like you say, <laughs> taking risks. And like especially when you're trying to get people to improvise. You know, we were just doing that today an hour ago, and it was so hard to get people to volunteer to improvise. You know, but if you get that kind of hot mess environment going. Gosh, it's just oh, so much good learning can occur when, when that happens and it's, a, and it's a safe environment, as you say. Gosh. It's true. And you learn so much about your students in those moments, too. Like, who is who? Which ones are like, I'm in. I'm going to do it. And which ones are like... I'm going to do it, but I'm going to make it the way that I want it to be. And which ones are like, <laughs> I am terrified that you've asked me to do something this scary. So, yep. you know, I did Gina Root was on our podcast last year, and she said that she does this composition exercise where they take the rhythm of Silent Night and they have to um, come up with a new melody that only contains certain intervals. So it's going to be really not tonal. It's going to be, you know, they're only given a, a small set of intervals. So I thought, okay, we're going to try this. So we took the first eight measures and I made them improvise it in class. I told them they could write it down. If they needed to think through the intervals, they could jot down what they had played. And then I listened to everybody's and it was really interesting because I had a couple of students who were like, I don't know how to do this right <laughs> and I was like, 
there's not a right way. Like, the way to do it right is to only use those three intervals and that rhythm. And other than that, you're good. All right. And I had a couple students who literally, I have this very bright student who plays piano really well, who sat there and thought for the longest time. And when I came over and heard his his little composition, I was like, this is really quite good. He's like, I thought for a long time about how I could only use those three intervals and have it still be tonal. And so I made it work because I didn't want it to sound bad. <laughs> so, you know, he needed to kind of like plan something. And then I had students who were like, yeah, I just made something up that sounded interesting. And, uh, and I mean, they all, they all had their own thing. A lot of the students who just made something up took kind of the motivic ideas from Silent Night. So they would repeat the same thing or then, you know, or maybe repeat the same idea, but at a different place on the, you know, starting on a different note or something. So they all held together and they were all interesting, but it did. I was like, what I learned today, I think they learned a little maybe about intervals, but I learned a lot about them today (laughs) and how they operate. That's so cool. It's taken me a long time to feel comfortable with improvisation because it's always been something I've held up there. Like there's those jazz students. Gosh, I wish I could do that. Mm -hmm. And really you can do low level improvisation. And I've simply stopped calling it improvisation in my classes. And I find that taking that word away is uh, uncorked a lot for a lot of people. And and some aren't fooled at all. And that's totally fine. Um, (laughs) But it's helpful. One of my favorite COVID assignments was we sing progressions like one, three, five, three, one, four, six, two, six, four. And I said, well, instead of singing me a progression, would you please just like turn those leaps into a little melody? You can add a couple steps in there. And so make sure you can sing the progression first and then just kind of flesh it out a bit. Cause gosh, I have to listen to 67 of these and I'd really, 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 really prefer to hear some stepwise motion in there. I got some really cool stuff uh-huh. and um, it was great. And you know, some people metered it and some people left it unmetered and some people were pretty lame and that's really okay because they all stretched and, yep. and that's what we're looking for. Oh, absolutely. A couple of years ago at SMT, you gave a talk about inclusivity in the classroom. And um, I, I will say that talk. So after I heard you give that talk, I brought corrections back. I had been not allowing them for a couple of years and I brought them back. And I think literally that Monday, like I went back into class and I was like, from here on out, you can make corrections after I heard your talk. Um, and I just really appreciated what you had to say about making the classroom environment a place where, you know, there's a little bit of leeway for students who are having a hard time or who are struggling, but then also making sure that your assignments are actually assessing the things that you're teaching them and not just, you know, okay, well, we did 25 intervals and, you know, is that what I really wanted to see them do today? So I wondered, could you fill our listeners in, anyone who wasn't at that talk if you remember kind of some of what you said uh, sure i i'm always amazed how many people remember that talk and really really so touched good. really touched um yeah so i think students learn when they feel safe and when they feel welcomed and wanted 
Um, and I think that as I, I don't say I teach, I say I facilitate learning. So as as facilitators of learning, um, that's incumbent on us to create that atmosphere. And it starts from day one with the syllabus and how, you know, I just revamped my syllabus again. And like instead of saying accommodations, I wrote and accommodations are embraced as like the header and you said instead of office hours I write you are welcome in office hours you know it's just just stuff like that just to just, you know lay the groundwork um I just finished a really cool opportunity I chaired a subcommittee of our Oberlin's presidential initiative on equity and diversity which was kicked off in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and they asked me to chair the curriculum and pedagogy subcommittee which is like my dream job um, and one thing we learned in that committee um, this was very focused on black students because of the context is that whatever is good for black students is good for everybody like when you look at and you disaggregate and you, you watch when black students' grades go up, every bit non-black students' grades go up too. <laughs> and um, that was mind-blowing to see data that showed that. Like, you know, you believe it in your heart, but to see right. data is really, really reaffirming. Um, so, you know, a lot of, I had the intense pleasure, and I, now I call myself a recovering posse mentor. Posse is a... Um, it's a national program that is a leadership scholarship. They are based in major cities, so and institutions. And I know I say this facetiously. We buy our posses. It's a way of um, increasing your compositional diversity because it gets you into communities that would never look at you. Um, and so we buy our posse from Chicago, and all these kids are coming from the south side of Chicago, and they're coming to Oberlin, and they've never seen a cornfield in their life, and now they're surrounded by cornfields. It's it's really rough, and I worked closely with a, a posse of ten students for four years, and I learned I learned so much. Um, we always know that there's a lot going on on underneath the hood of our students' lives, mm-hmm. um, but now I know real horrible details about some of that, and and wonder details too and what I know is that those students were so bright and so intelligent and so capable of doing the work um, that sometimes they really needed more time and space because there was so much going on in their life and they could not think deep spot deep thoughts uh, and you know sometimes it's so difficult that they need to take a, a semester off that definitely happens to all of us um, very few people have a eight semesters in a row of trajectory through college anymore. Um, it's making your course policies so that those needs are not othered. Like, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing, I'm not cutting you slack. This is written into my course. Um, helps with self-esteem so much. Um, it helps them feel like they're normal. It helps them succeed, and it helps everybody else succeed. It's 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 incredible. Mm-hmm. So you know things like allowing corrections, and and then I tell them I can't give you unlimited corrections because I have a life too, and I I can't constantly keep fixing it. Um, and they understand that they really respect that. Um, things about no attendance policy. Um, you know I I am I have really standards for what they need to do when they miss a class. I'm like, you need to um, get assignments from a friend, get notes from a friend, read them, and then come to me with questions. I'm really happy to answer your questions. Instead of having like a penalty, having like a, here's how you need to approach when you miss something, because that's real life. We all miss stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We are, we are. I mean, I have to miss stuff sometimes. I usually don't miss class, but I can imagine situations where that would happen. So both of those things um, are in course policies that I think are really important. One thing I learned in COVID times is that letting students take dictation exams with unlimited hearings didn't change my class average. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it was depressing and illuminating both at the same time. Uh-huh. <laughs> was, I was like, yeah. Okay, so I think we can let up on that um, on that requirement because they 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 do their best and then and then they move on. And so, you know, a, a beautiful class for me is one where someone who has accommodations don't need any special consideration because it's already built into how that class works. So there goes the time and a half um, people. They're, they're fine now. They don't need time and a half because it's unlimited time. Um, so that, that works. Um, I've tried to move towards valuing um, work and engagement and growth over product. Um, you know, for the most part, we tend to promote, I don't know what it's like at your schools, but we tend to promote students anytime we think that it's that we can right to the next course you know so you yep. let's say you don't have a passing average in rl skills one but i know you have the skills and you had an almost passing average in rl skills one um i'm i'm going to try really hard to make it so that you can take rl skills two because you're ready for rl skills two mm-hmm. um and you know hope hopefully whatever was preventing you from getting all the way through RL Skills 1 with a, an A or an A minus, you know, will work itself in RL Skills 2. If, if we're already in that mindset, um, I think um, prioritizing growth is, is really key. So I've got a new um, final project for RL Skills, which is a transcription project. And it's, um, you, you need to, I, I love this assignment so much. Uh, if you work for eight hours on your transcription project, you pass. And if you work for 10 hours, you get a plus. Um, that's just deeper engagement. And get as far as you can. Some of you will get 16 bars. Some of you will do all three options. Um, and you know, as someone who grew up with perfect pitch, and an orchestral player, dictation and transcription is a joke for me in the, in, as an undergraduate. I never learned anything, and so I just kind of flew through it. If I had this project, I would have actually had to work and grow from it. Um, there's a short reflection before they turn it in, you know, and I'm big on reflection. And I, I, I like that project because it takes away being right or wrong. Um, it's just, you know, work for as long as you can on it, space it out, and, you know, tell me how you grew. And I think students get a lot out of it, and it's not so stressful. They have to save time for it during finals week, obviously. Mm-hmm. But it's not like I've got to study, and then I've got to go to the professor's office and sing the Schubert song, and then, you know, <laughs> yeah. now I have to listen to tricords yeah. and identify them in two hearings. And so it's, I, I just think it's... It's a lot healthier, and I choose beautiful music, in my opinion, so uh, they, they like that too. Usually there's a, three options, there's a jazz tune, um, a quartet, and an art song. And, and they get as far as they can, and there's a meeting about halfway through, a one-on-one meeting with me where, you know, I say, how's it going? The, the ones who are flying through it, we find ways of making it harder. 
Um, so, okay, let's get that bass line in there. Um, you know, there's a viola line that's really good. Please use alto clef. Let's, let's, let's engage with your clefs there and just kind of, you know, tailor it to where they can keep working on it. And gosh, some of these kids have mad skills. Their ears are oh, so yeah. good. <laughs> and like, whoa, that's nuts. So... So I guess, you know, those are my, you know, my classroom structure kind of loves. Um, I also have become a firm believer in the fact that representation matters. Um, if you can see yourself in the materials, it, it helps you believe you can do it. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing a lot of work on, you know, DEI work on our course packs and um, trying to show more pictures of the composers, the white ones yeah, and the non-white I've been doing ones. That too. Yeah, I think it's important, makes a difference, because like, when you're from different cultures, you don't even know sometimes if the name is male, female, mm-hmm. or, or what. And uh-huh. yeah, look at those wigs. But it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's fun, and you know, the internet's such a, a treasure trove of pictures <laughs> of composers. We can find them pretty easily. So. Yeah, I've been doing a song of the day at the beginning of my um, written theory classes, because sometimes those classes, no matter what you do, can feel really devoid of music, even though music is supposed to be the centerpiece of those classes. And I've also been using it as an opportunity to showcase women composers or people of color or whatever. And so I've made sure that the picture of either the performer or the composer or both is up at the top every time. Um, and as much as I can, I've been avoiding dead white guys, um, (laughs) just trying to get, and it's also been a great opportunity to get other sounds into my classroom too. Um, we are a choral only school, so my students, don't hear a lot of instrumentalists playing everywhere. So I've played, you know, a tuba quartet piece or a jazz <laughs> ensemble piece. And so many of the students I've, I've played, I played uh, the Carolina Chocolate Drops. The students loved them. Um, so many of the Esperanza Spalding, the students loved her. So many came back and were like, I've downloaded everything she did. I love it. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's important to show just a whole variety of faces and make it all equal. Like here's Hildegard von Bingen from, you know, the 1100s who wrote music. Here's, you know, this person who's doing it today. Here's Stevie Wonder. That's what that looks like, you know? So just making it all kind of like, it's all music. That's what we do here. That is, right? One, one of my favorite things to do when I'm teaching RL skills and things are starting to slow down, I'm like, I love the Stump the Chump episode part of um, Car Talk. I don't know if you guys know uh-huh. that po- uh-huh. that podcast. Or in, and so I'm like, all right, I believe that I can teach any music something relevant to class that day. So students will come in, they'll plug in their device to say, okay, Miyaki, let's go. And it'll be something, <laughs> I, I, like, I don't know what it's going to be. It's, it's never been anything terrifying, though. I, I do ask them that, that they keep the lyrics PG just because, you know, I, I don't know what the class's yeah. feeling is on that. Um, and there's always something I can teach. There's a cool bass line or there's a recurring rhythm that we can dictate. Um, and it, it lets them bring their, their music into class. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's exciting for me 
me because I get to hear lots of new music and I get to be creative and I'm starting my 20th year of teaching and it's some, some days I'm like, how could it already be year 20? And other days I'm like, ah, I feel like I've done this a few times. Um, so <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. But that's, that's really, really a, a fun game to play with them. And I, I love, I love learning new music. Um, I love sharing music that I have found with my students that's outside of my canon. I did a, I did a project I don't know, about 10 years ago where every class, and I blogged about it because that's what people are doing those days. Um, every class I taught some music that was outside of my canon. Like I couldn't wrap my head around what the canon was, but I knew what my canon right. was. So I said, okay, I'm going to teach outside my canon every day. And I, I would blog about it before I, um, before I taught. And then after I taught, like a reflection on how it went and what I would do differently and stuff like that. And that was a really, a really fun project and definitely pushed me out of my comfort zone. I'll say that sometimes students don't even know that the artist might be a person of color. Because, for example, today we did The Lion Sleeps Tonight and I said, well, who wrote the song, you know, and... Those of you that know the history of that will probably already know this, but, you know, somebody says the tokens and I was like, no, that's completely wrong. You know, the song was completely stolen from, you know, Solomon Linda who's South African and his family, you know, lived in poverty. He died $20 to his name. And meanwhile, this song has generated $15 million worth of composer royalties. You know, it's just like people don't know that stuff, you know, and you're thinking that, um, you have a song and you think, you know, who you associate that song with, but that may be even completely wrong, you know? So it's worth, uh, showing little, little tidbits like that even kind of can be really revealing. (laughs) I just learned about the provenance of Kumbaya, which I had no idea. And it's a, it's a Gola spiritual and they're actually saying come by come by you something like that but the the person who recorded it couldn't understand their english and said it's kumbaya and now i mean it's and it's deeply spiritual um which is um not necessarily how it's used anymore and i was right. i'm just gonna have to keep reading about it because i had no idea yeah <laughs> Now, the question I have, and I think for for many folks who are like, yes, diversity, we want to get outside of our, the canon, our own personal canon, but sometimes, well, eventually you're faced with, well, what am I going to leave out, right? If I'm going to talk about The Lion Sleeps Tonight or any of these kind of contemporary or open our class up to what our students are listening to, what are we going to not have time to talk about? So what are kind of the things that you've had to maybe let go of or maybe not cover as much uh, in in this uh, move to a more inclusive and diverse uh, repertoire? Yeah. Um, I've, I've given up on a lot of um, Baroque and Renaissance songs that are gorgeous, um, but are pretty far removed from our students' current musical experience, for better or for worse. Um, you know, as I've been working through this for 10-ish years, one thing I've really realized is that I was trained, and therefore I am training my students until I break it, to be experts in Austro-German music. Um, it's, it's Bach, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, Schoenberg, Webernberg, you know, right? It's mm-hmm. where it's, that's, that's it. Oh, Schubert Schumann, sorry. And, um, 
and Basically I can Vienna, see, right? I mean, yeah. whatever that zip code is, <laughs> yeah. you know the music from that zip code. <laughs> exactly, and it's not is it called that, a V code there. I don't know. It's not that it's bad to be an expert in these things. I mean, like I'm the Be- I, I'm the Beethoven person in my theory department. I teach the Beethoven class, which is great. Um, I teach the Schenker class, which is great. But it's um, it's that our students' musical appetites and their careers depend on so much more than Austro-German music, and we're doing them a real disservice by doing that deep scuba dive into one really narrow thing. I would have my brightest students come back their senior year with a piece of Ravel and say, I want to theory this. Like they turned it into a verb. I want to theory this. And I don't even know where to start. And I would look at it and be like, I'm not sure I know where to start either. How bad is that? I mean, that's just Ravel. Ravel is very mainstream. And so I I think that the what we've inherited from generations of music theory pedagogy is now doing our students a disservice. I think maybe 50 years ago, it was exactly what we all needed, except none of us were alive 50 years ago. Um, And so I'm not thinking about it so much in terms of what I'm giving up. I'm thinking about it in terms of what enables my students to have the richest careers and be able to say smart stuff about the widest variety of music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that really freeing. Um, it's hard. It's hard to make that shift. I know we have a very big department here at Oberlin. There's 12 of us, and um, it's all undergraduate. So we have no grad students helping do the teaching. So it, we, we do it all. And you know, each of us comes at that differently. And it's it's scary to to give up teaching. Um, du bist du Ruhe, right? I, I love that song. It's a gorgeous song. But gosh, Rhiannon Giddens has some really good songs mm-hmm. that I can say <laughs> some really good stuff about. And she's also an Oberlin graduate, so there's that, you know, there's that there too. Um, so I'm, ex- I'm, I'm, I'm excited about preparing our students better. And, and that's kind of the non-answer to your question. No, I think that's I think that's a great answer. It's what are we gaining? And I, I agree that we need to be thinking about what these students need going into the future. You know, it's it's and it's but it's so hard because we tend to teach the way that we were taught. And so we're kind of having to relearn, you know, in in, in our own time without uh, and kind of letting go of what we've yeah. inherited mm-hmm. in many ways. Yeah. And it's just not what we were taught, you know. So I'm sitting here in a conservatory of music with a huge studio faculty, very accomplished studio faculty. It's what they were taught too, mm-hmm. all right? And mm-hmm. so that's what they expect music theory to do. And we have a very healthy relationship between studio teachers and theory teachers at Oberlin, which is, we're very lucky. And so we are rolling out our, our new curriculum right now. And it's, it's for Oberlin, it's really radical. Um, and there's, I don't think there's any voice leading anymore, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of harmony. There's a lot of paradigms. There's a lot of, um, a lot more with rhythm and timbre and meter and all this stuff. And, you know, we can't, we can't necessarily rely on uh, non-experts in music theory and non-experts in, in classroom teaching to tell us what their students need from music theory. And it's a really, it's a, a really delicate line to walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am so grateful to the studio faculty at Oberlin for, for trusting us because it, it was a, every person in the con had a vote on whether this curricular change was going to go through. And it was unanimous. There was no, there was no problem. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I'm really grateful. 
Um, and I think that their students, they'll see the results in their students, both engagement with thinking about music and hearing it. The, the team who's teaching the theory one this fall, which I'm not on, um, you know, one of them said to me, she's like, after six weeks of working on the new curriculum, I hear differently. She's like, I am a PhD music theorist. Like, how were we not teaching these things before? So, um, yeah. Wow. That, that's, that's really cool. So can you give us uh, just maybe the elevator pitch for the new curriculum change uh, that, that you have going on here? So is it just a change of uh, concepts and topics? Is it a changing of uh, the number of courses that are offered or the types of courses that are offered? So kind of give us a little taste of how you've changed. So I am, okay, it is a big change. It's a four semester core, like a lot of conservatories have. Um, it's still a four semester core, but we raised the bar on what needs to happen to start in the, the curriculum. And so you need to get an 80% on a fundamentals test that teaches that test bass and treble clef, compound and simple meter intervals, triads and supposedly seventh chords, but they're not actually on there, um, scales. So we've got to get that up to 80%, and they can take that placement test up to five times. They take it the first time during audition weekends. Um, and they, there's a summer course that they can take for free uh, called Youth, uh, Music Theory Jumpstart, and then we use a program called Youth Theory, which is um, coded and designed by our choral teacher, who's got the highest certification of Dalcro's Eurythmics that you can get here in the States, um, and they can work independently there. Or they can take um, a new course that preps them for that, and that's a four-credit course that will do a lot of writing about music in addition to the fundamentals. Um, the first year is, um, is Everyone takes the same two classes. The first semester is pretty topically based. It used to be organized by chord, which might be how your curricula are organized, um, or might not. And now they're starting with a unit on meter and rhythm. Um, I just, someone was just texting me about the first assignments, like a, a ski graph and a hypermetrical analysis of this and, and all, all this stuff that I don't actually, I know hypermetrical analysis, so I don't know what a ski graph is yet. So she says it's not hard and I'll learn, I, I'll learn it pretty easily. Um, and there's, I think they got all harmony into four weeks. Um, that's kind of through the Cadential 6-4, mainly because you're not doing any voice leading. Yeah. There's a counterpoint unit right. that's going to not just do Fuxian counterpoint, but also dissonant counterpoint, and just really looking at melody and um, the tension between the lines. And then I think they're finishing out with a timbre unit. Yeah. And so that's exciting. The second semester, we're building on all those co concepts, and we're looking at like the role of repetition and the role of development. Um, and the, the way that you know we approach this as departments, a lot of brainstorming. We were on Zoom. We used breakout rooms to get into small groups of three and work things out. I have a very diverse department. Every group of three had a woman or a person of color in it. Um, so that was really lucky. Um, and we'll be teaching that for the first time in the spring. We have our first meeting on that next week. The second year, the students will have an a la carte menu to choose from. They need to choose one, at least one course that engages with post-tunnel techniques. 
And though we're going to move a lot of our upper division courses down to the 200 level. So for instance, I'm going to revamp my Beethoven class as a class around music of so-called geniuses, which will, mm. which will touch on Beethoven, but it will also touch on Rian Giddens or Fela Kuti, who's a, I think, a Nigerian rap artist, um, Miles Davis, right? So the music of geniuses and so-called geniuses. And, you know, we'll, we'll just delve into that. That, that'll be the that'll be the content. We'll do a little questioning around the idea of genius, but it's essentially going to be a form and analysis class um, around around those musics. Um, someone wants to teach a partimento class. Uh, someone wants to teach a string quartet class that goes chronologically. Um, someone wants to teach a class on the moving image and music. Um, so it's it's just kind of out there, and we're really excited about that. Um, the kind of the fallout, which I'm really excited about also, is that a lot of um, majors are now not requiring upper division theory courses. So a lot of students had to take six semesters of theory, which is not a bad thing. But I think, you know, taking four semesters in the new curriculum sets them up well, too, and then frees up some electives for them to um, take classes in community engagement or professional development or all these other things that they really need to be successful instead of maybe six theory classes. So that's that's the structure of it. Um, when I was so I'm chair right now, and so that's it's an exciting time to be chair. So I, I I wrote a lot of the course objectives as I summarized our discussions with an eye. I just read Kendi's How to Be Anti-Racist book, and so one of the things I took away from that was, you know, when you're making policies and structures, you don't want to write out things implicitly. You want to write write them so that the widest umbrella of things are acceptable. And so, you know, I, I rewrote those course objectives in ways that we can teach uh, North Indian classical music or gamelan or bluegrass or protest music or Beethoven um, to, to teach the concepts. And it's not that we're requiring every department member to do that. Um, it's that we're making it possible to do that. And you know, with a big department, you know, we usually have a tenure track hire maybe every seven years, maybe eight, eight years. And over time, you know, I think there's room to grow into this curriculum that I'm really excited about. It's really fantastic. That's great. My goodness. <laughs> Kudos to you for trying to take on the task of making such radical changes. I mean, gosh, what a, yeah. what a tall order. I mean, it was just a tall order for me to try to get my colleagues to vote out Sonata Form from Theory 3, you know, let alone trying to do much more, which you have done so successfully at Uber. We're, so. I, we're, I feel so lucky to have the division that we have, the members of the division we have. And, you know, I, the, I, the people who are skeptical, they're, they're taking that, that medical thing of do no harm. They're just, they're not throwing wrenches into the, the works. They're just being quiet and they're just, they're, they're working at it. They're working hard, um, but they're not, they're not holding things up. We started this um, in spring of 19 is when we started conversations. And then we really went gung-ho on it a year ago and, and got it through all the government, faculty governance and all that stuff. And so it was very exciting to be rolling it out this fall. And we, we start classes in two weeks, a week and a half. So I'll tell you how it goes at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'd, yeah, we'd love to have you on and to uh, give us a, kind of an update of how things are going. Yeah. Be yeah. Awesome. 
a semester yeah. by semester kind of. We're, we're not, you know, I said to the department, they, this was really freeing, we're not going to get it perfect the first time. It's okay. That's an unrealistic expectation. We're not going to get it perfect the first time. We're just going to, we're going to do our best. Oh, yeah. It's a good hot mess. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny, Jan, you were mentioning the terminology, some of your course objectives. One thing that came up yesterday, I had lunch with one of our coordinators of living and learning communities at North Texas. And it was really interesting because sometimes people think that their language is being inclusive but it's, and sometimes it's not they just think it is or they're making a change or that they think sounds inclusive but then to someone else it's actually pretty exclusive and the example i was going to give is that this person said i want to sit down and have lunch with you about the music and jazz llc <laughs> and i started off lunch by saying let's just start with the title because your title is music and jazz i said do you realize you know, that that's kind of exclusive to especially jazz, right. you know? Like, <laughs> and it was like, mind equals blown. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, let me write this down. You know, I had no idea. And I'm like, why don't we just call music living and learning, you know, community. And let's start with that as a, as our conversation starter. And then we'll proceed to, from, to brainstorm from there. But, and he said, oh, I was trying to be more inclusive and include jazz. And I was like, well, you know, it didn't really come off that way to me. I'm sorry, you know. It's, but, oh, my goodness. So the effort yeah. was there, but, man, the result was not good, in my opinion. Thank goodness for communities, like, where we can bounce ideas off each other. And, true. And, you know, it makes such a difference because we're all in our heads. And we're, I, I really believe in that humans have good intentions. It's just, like, one of my core beliefs. And when someone puts their foot in their mouth, it's just literally that. It's it's nothing darker than that, you know. It's like okay, yeah. let's you know, hey, let's, you know, that that that's not what I hear when you say that. Is this like <laughs> oh, <laughs> right, exactly. So. Yeah, but it's just good to have those conversations. Absolutely, absolutely, for sure. But we we really struggled with how to title the the pre theory one class because. The traditional title is um, Introduction to Music Theory. It's very much an introduction to five-line staff notation classical music theory. But nobody, none of us could come up with the title, and I was losing a lot of goodwill spending time on it. And I decided that this was not the hill to die on. And it is, it is just going to be called Introduction to Music Theory, even though I hate it. Um, it's, it, this was not the hill to die on. So, so two-year term as chair, uh, let's, let's keep that goodwill. I can, start, I can start dying on hills in like January or February. So. <laughs> well, so you have had a couple of leadership positions. You said you're chair right now, but you mentioned an earlier one where you were you know, serving on a committee for the president and some things like that. So can you talk about some of those experiences, especially as both a woman, a person of color? Um, we are not we are the minority in our field, for sure, and often in academia, too. So can you talk about those leadership experiences that you've had? Sure. They're, they're exhausting because, um, you know, I, I've always grown up in white spaces and navigated white spaces, but I'm still othered in them because I don't look white on a very basic level. Um, and. It's exhausting because you're constantly you're constantly pointing out you know stuff like music and jazz. You're you're constantly doing that work, 
and you become the politely squeaking wheel, which is a role that everyone should play. Um, but because of lived experiences, some of us see things differently. And you know, the more women and POCs we can get into the rooms, the less work it is for each of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's helpful. And you know, to have wonderful allies in the room makes a big difference, a huge difference, also. So it's um, so you know, being I was treasurer, elected treasurer of SMT, and that was a four-year term on the board, which is forever. Four years. It's long really problem. long. They didn't tell me it was four years when they asked me to run. I was like, what? Okay, then. Um, and, you know, so I went through that with three presidents, different presidents of SMT. And um, that, that it's a lot of work. If you ever have the chance to serve, you should, because it's really meaningful work. But it's also one of those things I don't think I would do multiple times in my life. I think once, once is right. Um, so, you know, there's that, there's, you're constantly, you're just constantly doing the work. Um, and it's not necessarily the work that you want to be doing, right? I, I just want to do my Haydn project. You know, that's about as wide as it gets. But I just want to do my, my Haydn project. But no, 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 no. I've, I have ideas and I have, I have heart and I, I, I like working on on all sorts of issues. So there's, there's that, you know, I'm chair of the SMT's committee on the status of women right now. And that feels a little, uh, it just felt a little weird because I got the ask right before Phil Ewell pointed out that there's never been a non-white chair of the CSW. And thank goodness I got the ask before Phil Ewell put that out there. Because um, otherwise, you're in that position like, oh, that's the only reason why they asked me. Because um, mm-hmm. it, it would feel that way. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what, what we're doing there is all of a sudden we're, I had a lot of energy towards doing a panel on intersectionality in our scholarship. Um, and because, well, first of all, I really want to rename that committee the Committee on Gender Equity, so we could we could start there. But that's a year two project, not a year one project. Um, and but you know, just I think that's partly my perspective. Is like I'm not just a woman; I'm, I'm a Japanese American woman. Um, it does influence the way I am treated and perceived, um, and that's that's okay. That's part of living in my skin. I like I like living in my skin. I don't have any problem with that. Um, but thinking about intersectionality and how it could influence our scholarship, I think, is a really cool thing to talk about, especially as our field strives to become more diverse. And so that's a two-year, a two-year cycle. This year, we're just having scholars in who do this really well. Um, so um, Dean Hubbard coming in and um, Alicia Jones from IU and, uh, gosh, Lori Burns. There it is. And this, I'm just really excited. And they're going to model for us, you know, what, what it looks like to do this in your scholarship. And there'll be a panel discussion with the idea that next year in 2022 that we will um, ask for papers that do that explore using intersectionality in their own research. So I'm excited about that. Wow. Um, and then I just became president of Music Theory Midwest, which is um, fun. And it's one of the things, the one of the bad things about being female in SMT and then in a minoritized race within SMT is that when when nominating committees put together a slate of people to vote for, if you run a woman and against a man, the, the society votes for the woman. 
and I need someone to do the study and go back and look at it, the historical elections. But it's it's pretty it's pretty skewed, and now women are overrepresented in leadership positions, which is exciting in a way, but bad because it's hard to get your scholarship done when you're doing so much service. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get your scholarship done, you do what my data point has done, which I can see sometimes. I can see my data point. Um, I'm you know stalled out at the associate professor level. And that has to do with a lot of things, including the posse mentorship and having three children. But like, it's, it's a thing. It's a thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're on a nominating committee, please think carefully about this. (laughs) Because uh, we don't want to burn out all the women. And, and that's, that's, that's real. Um, It's fun to work with lots of women. I'll say that. But it's, um, I think it's a little disturbing when I look at the composition of the boards right now. So you should take a look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a point very, very well taken. I've never been on a nominating committee, but gosh, if the time ever comes, I'm definitely going to go back to this this conversation and think about it really deeply. Yeah, there's a lot more nuance to it than I think. You know, I think a lot of us mm-hmm. come with this you know, attitude of, yeah, let's have more uh, women, more people of color, but when a, in a field that's so white and male <laughs> as, as music mm-hmm. theory, um, those folks who represent the minorities get stretched really thin, and then it, it hinders all sorts of other yep. aspects of your career as well. Well, well this has often, been... Yeah. Sorry, I was going to say we're often stretched thin at our universities as well, so it's not just in the music theory world. Those things are happening at the university level, too. And if you show any sort of aptitude for that kind of work, then it just doubles down and triples down. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, Uh Women in service roles is a big, that's a big thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really exploring how to how to shape my narrative. I'm going to go up for full next year and how to shape my narrative because the service I've done has been, you know, above and beyond. And um, my scholarship is present and it is present. And I'm, I'm happy about that. But that's, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about this, too. Yeah, it's all, yeah. all about that narrative, how you can spin that narrative. <laughs> I, I, I'm submitting my associate uh, 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 pack it tomorrow that's the that's the final <laughs> that's the deadline to press the button i haven't done it yet everything is uploaded but i'm like you got this I, Paul. I, I click it so uh, <laughs> but yeah it's all about that narrative and you know highlighting uh what's, what's uh, the most important things but this has been such a pleasure jan to chat with you and learn so much and i am so excited to hear about the changes at oberlin and mm-hmm. how those happen because it's places like oberlin it's places like harvard these places that make these changes that it trickles down to other institutions you know around the country so we're really excited and kind of rooting for the best uh for these changes before we go though we do have some rapid fire questions that (laughs) we'd like to throw out at you um and so these are questions you we you have not been prepped for um (laughs) (laughs) um, ben or jen do you want to go first ben do you have something oh i'm going to ask favorite artists that you would add to we'll say our canon or our our teachings. Definitely Rhiannon Giddens right now. I'm such a fan. I just downloaded her new album two days ago, and I've listened to it 20 times, I think. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I got to check it out. I don't know enough. I'll, I'll be honest. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, my question was going to be, what is the thing you are most looking forward to teaching next week? <laughs> two weeks. Um, oh, two weeks, right. Two weeks, yeah. Yeah, not for us. It's... Um, 
I love the first day of Aural Skills One. Um, I because I have the freshman, and I I say jump, and they say how high, and we don't do the syllabus on day one. We 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 work, and usually I lead them through Ode to Joy and contouring Ode to Joy, and then they write it down and they look and like whoa. I didn't know I could do that. And I try not to talk much. I like just like grab them and say, join in when you figure out what's going on. And I'm just, I'm really excited to be back in the classroom for the first time in 18 months and um, have have them. I, I want to get rid of Ode to Joy, <laughs> but I don't know what else to do that's going to be so universal. Like, I hate my country to the bee. So it's, uh, it's in first day of RL Skills 1. So I'll, I'm still working on that moment. Oh. That's great. All right, my question is 564 or 164 or other because there's other options. So um, I am definitely a CAD 64 person. Ah, all right. It's, uh, I understand why 564 is confusing, and in my heart, I believe 164 is wrong, um, even though I understand why it's right. <laughs> so I, I like I like CAD 64 because it gets rid of all of it, and actually, my favorite is like the bracket under the numbers. But I don't think I'm going to have to teach it anymore. <laughs> Because it's just going to be a dominant intensification. There you go. So solve that problem right there. <laughs> I'm never going to be able to ask that question again for these uh, <laughs> rapid fires. <laughs> uh, love it, love it. So as we wrap up, um, maybe give our listeners a little bit of uh, kind of where they can find you um, on the internet. And uh, we didn't get a chance as much to talk about your your uh, your research work with Haydn, but any kind of things that you have, um, you know, cooking other than all of your service work and, you know, right. teaching and all of that. Well, you can find me at jan.miyake, which is M-I-Y-A-K-E, at copeland.edu. Um, that old blogging project is at teaching-matters.net. And I haven't been blogging since then because I got I got um, roped into mentoring this posse and everything I was thinking about was with them and it was so personal and so inappropriate to blog about, mm. and so that that just went dormant. Um, and I am a I'm a Facebook user because I'm in my mid forties, <laughs> and I'm working on I'm working on my Twitter my Twitter game and that's at Jan underscore Miyaki. so. Um, you can find me in all the spaces, and, and I respond to all of my emails, so reach out anytime. <laughs> You're a good administrator that way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We will be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye. Somebody in church Sunday was like, are you a musician? And then it was like, are you on the note doctors? Wait, wait, who said that? What? Who? This lady that was sitting behind me. What? And I was like, wow, that was the lead in? Wow, this is like reached new heights. That's hilarious. That's really funny. We are so pleased to have you on the podcast and to share your insight with us. <coughs> Sorry, I had a... <laughs> And take two. Here come the crackers. <laughs> <laughs>